Hello and welcome to Looks Unfamiliar, the show that remembers that the second issue of short-lived mid-80s teenage arts and culture newspaper Bang included an editorial decrying EastEnders as the opium of the people. I'm not entirely convinced that they understood either the Karl Marx quote or EastEnders. I'm Tim Worthington and joining me today to talk about some of the things that he remembers that nobody else ever seems to is journalist Mick Wright. Mick, what you up to work? We find it. I write a daily media criticism newsletter called Conquest of the Useless and you can find that on Substack, brokenbottleboy.substack.com or just go to Broken Bottle Boy on Twitter where you can find all the things I am doing. Okay, well for your first choice, you've chosen a record that in some ways alighted on in a vague way. Some of the concerns that you do address in your newsletter. This is a great favourite of mine but not enough people know about it so let's hear it and then let's talk about what it is. title of the song is Mick who were the times and how did they help Patrick McGowan escape the times is sort of an offshoot band from television personalities the sort of the mainstay of the times is a guy called Ed Ball who was one of the co-founders of television personalities with Dan Tracy this is their their second single which launched the art pop label and it's a really interesting single because after this like Ed Ball took the times down quite sort of serious line with a lot of the songs which are great too the funny thing about this song is I heard this song on a kind of a I think kind of like a C86 adjacent compilation in the late 90s before I knew or had seen The Prisoner. So this single was a way in to me of finding out who Patrick McGowan was and knowing about The Prisoner. So that is how I subsequently ended up watching The Prisoner. Yeah, it's got an interesting backstory because as you say, The Times was an offshoot of, I mean, there were so many offshoot bands of the television personalities, most of which had all of the members of the television personalities in so it's difficult to get yeah, back like of them yeah like O-Level and the teen film stars well, yeah, and, yeah it, was it was originally done by the teenage film stars in a not as good version although apparently you know it was reviewed quite well at the time but it's not got enough punch and the, the voiceover in the middle where they do the where am I in the village and so on they're kind of doing it in a sort of jokey television personalities comedy voice way it doesn't really work this version from 1982 obviously I had to go and check this but the Channel 4 repeats of The Prisoner had hadn't been on yet. I'm guessing they saw the, I think it was 1978 ITV repeats, but The Prisoner had come out on rental VHS by then. And obviously they peppered this with sound effects and they got the drummer was, he's now an actor himself, Mark Empire Shepherd, who's been in a lot of things like Doctor Who and Firefly. But his father is W. Morgan Shepherd, who does the voice of number two in the middle of this. Yes, which is a great fact. And it's got the thunder from the start of The Prisoner at the start of it. 
it's so much more polished it really does sound like it's got that 80s twist to it but it does sound like a cash-in record somebody would have done while the prisoner was actually on yeah i mean when i first heard it the references and stuff were completely alien to me but it's an incredible chorus i think it's a really good song it's very re-listenable and it does have like obviously they all love this kind of 60s vibe and it does have that 60s vibe ultimately i think i do think it's bizarre i mean i know it is a bizarre thing but but you see i was encountering it at a time when accessing the prisoner wasn't that easy like the vhs's weren't that around i think eventually i saw it on possibly a dvd sometime late 90s and now you can watch it on britbox yeah because there was in between that there were the repeats on channel four and i think it was 91 into 92 yeah but i was born in 1984 so ties in with the prisoner quite neatly then but i was at school at the time the main thing i remember is people saying oh i watched that the prisoner last night i didn't understand the second of it and then a couple of days later they'd be saying anyone else see twin peaks i'm the best at liking twin peaks and you, you can't say that you understand one and not the other if anything the prisoner makes more sense than twin peaks i've always thought that thing where people say the prisoner doesn't make sense is a really stupid thing to say the introduction to every episode where he's drugged and he's taken to the village makes it very clear what's going on that there's this psychological torture for him that they're trying to get stuff out of him that the whole village is about that it makes apparent sense from minute one i think it absolutely does and you can see why they bought into it so much and felt moved to do the single at a time when i don't think the prisoner stock could have been ironically that did change when channel 4 repeated it the next year but i think its stock was at its lowest it's ever been because everything for the itc catalog you know they were the big tv shows of the 60s things like the super Nation shows were being hawked around the itv networks often on first thing in the morning on a sunday at different times in different itv regions they hadn't made sort of to be celebrated yet yet the other shows you know that have been big things like randall and hopkirk deceased on in the afternoons on itv it wasn't even just the good stuff they put on then as well you know things like ski boy were floating around which as much as i love it it's not a television <laughs> classic the adventurer which i remember seeing that in the listings and thinking oh i hope i'm off school one day when that's on because it's an itc program i can see it and then i finally saw it and you know it's got one of the john barry's theme tunes one of the best theme tunes ever written and then the program is just gene barry wheezing around amsterdam kind of dressed as an mfi sofa <laughs> But The Prisoner itself was kind of similarly cut adrift because I think that would have been around the time ITC was changing hands and, you know, people hadn't started to look back on these things in the proper critical appreciative sense yet. And I think it it shows that when it got that Channel 4 repeat in 1983 that, you know, somebody was already thinking this is more significant than Ski Boy. Yeah, I wonder also if it comes from the kind of indie mentality that you get from, say, Half Man, Half Biscuit you know of referencing something that at that point only a very small certain group of people will get and doing it in a really serious way i think is quite interesting because you're right the earlier version i re- i don't like it nearly as much what makes the song both funny but also good is that they take it deadly serious that's what's really good about it, it feels like there's a sense of jeopardy to it in an odd way somehow in my head i sort of they're not connected at all but i somehow connect it in a way to half man half biscuit in that way of thinking 
about referencing things and, and layering references in songs. To me, in my head, they almost exist on a similar shelf. I think what's really interesting as well is that the whole television personalities expanded universe, want of a better word, they were ahead of the curve in being into the 60s and also weren't just kind of, you know, we love Flower Power and Sergeant Pepper and Thunderbirds. I mean, if you even look at what the Times went on to do, there's the concept album imagining, I mean, they call him David Jones for rights reasons, but David Bowie's 60s persona caught up in a murder mystery. They did an adaptation of Up Against It, the script that Joe Orton did for the Beatles. Again, a couple of names changed in that to avoid rights things, but they were mining it, you know, for proper, because they loved this stuff for proper artistic interest. And on the back of the first television personalities album, And Don't the Kids Just Love It, it's like a collage with Pogles Woods, Sid Barrett, some of the angry young men, Joe Orton, David Hockney. And at that time, people weren't really celebrating that kind of stuff. It was kind of the preserve of, you know, I remember when people sort of my age were into 60s stuff. It was kind of a mishmash, a bit like these guys were with current trends. You know, it wasn't like that pretentious about it. It's kind of fun, a discovery of these things. Yeah. And that's yeah, why exactly. when people put the prisoner on the pedestal, I don't like that at all. And they were showing the other side of that, the fact that you can have some fun with liking it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know who it was by, but there's a few books about the prisoner in the charity shop a while back. And I thought, oh, maybe I'll get this. And then I started reading it. I thought, oh, wow, this takes it so seriously, takes it so seriously. I think there's a middle ground. You can look at prisoner and say this is ridiculous, right? Or you can look at it and consider it as this very multi-layered artwork. And I think somewhere in the middle, it's like this is a fun TV show that's also kind of a bit smarter than some other TV shows. That's the sort of nice ground. And you're right, the times get that right on that song. Also, it's just a really good pop song, you know? It's very catchy. Yeah, it was always being requested on when Annie Nightingale used to have the request show on Radio 1 after the charts on a Sunday evening. It would quite often start with this. And it was a great way to start the show, you know, immediately after... I remember hearing after that bloody Brian Adams song was number one for about the 14th week. And then immediately afterwards, you've got I Help Patrick McGowan Escape. It did help lift my mood a little bit. But yeah, the other thing about the fact that you shouldn't take the prisoner too seriously is I think that's part of the reason that Patrick McGowan was not... He was taking it seriously, but at the same time, he was having a laugh at the audience's expense, at his own expense, at Lou Grade's expense with the money that was spent on it. I think it's because of that that people have this... I mean, it's even shifted now. People used to say there wasn't author television before Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and it's now become The Wire. It was the Sopranos for a bit. It seems to move forward and forward in time all the time. But the reaction you get, if you know when it's one of those articles, and then you just quote tweet it on Twitter with a photo of Patrick McGowan bursting through the door in the opening <laughs> titles, people get very angry and say, it's not the same thing at all. But it kind of is. If there was ever an author television programme, it was this. Yeah, 100%. And it, you're right. I, there are times in episodes of The Prisoner where you can just, you can see him almost side-eyeing the camera, like, I cannot believe I'm getting away <laughs> with this particular plot line or whatever. Like, there's the episode where there's a plane where he tries to get the plane. You can sort of just, like, descend into The Prisoner. I love the fact also that we started on this, like, single that's about The Prisoner, but we have been sucked into the world of The Prisoner. I like that it's accessible, that you can watch it on streaming now but on the other hand I think it's interesting to look at this single as this artifact of like you say people putting something out a record out about something that a lot of people at the time wouldn't have been able to access so you've got to try and remember it from you know the previous set of repeats or you know be someone who was a bit older and around when it originally went out and I think that's kind of interesting just the notion of we're not going to try and appease the broad audience here is a quite obscure thing that we're just gonna make a whole song about and like densely reference. Okay, well, just to really, really annoy any kind of devoted hardcore Guardian Easters listening,
ending. We're going to move on to your second choice, which I'm going to claim this as author television as well. forget the wire that was a theme from clarissa explains it all mick explain it all this is one of those things you know where people talk about melissa joan hart and they talk about sabrina the teenage witch and i'm like no 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 the real heads know that it's about clarissa explains it all it aired for three years between 1991 and 1984 there is the subsequent novel that came out in 2015 called things i can't explain where clarissa's now in her 20s but the show itself was about teenage girl clarissa she's got an annoying younger brother she's got a friend sam who always climbs into her room via a stepladder that goes up to her window. She talks directly to the audience, breaks a fourth wall regularly in it. When I was seeing it, I was seeing it in sort of mid-90s, around the same time that I also really liked Adventures of Pete and Pete, which was another Nickelodeon show, which also had this kind of slightly... Pete and Pete goes a lot further in its oddness. Clarissa Explains It All is very much like an early evening sitcom, but it has this strange element of the break in the fourth wall, but also it brings in some stuff from Melissa Joan Hart's own things that she was interested in, like they might be giants have a presence in it which probably wouldn't happen in a major way till Malcolm in the Middle and there's just this interesting stuff like she has a little alligator called Elvis that she keeps in a sandbox in her room and she has a very interesting relationship with her parents it's not like this traditional kind of antagonistic sitcom relationship it's kind of more friendly than that the sibling rivalry between her and her brother her brother's awful and there's interesting things like you know at the time the orthodoxy was still you can't have a sitcom with a female lead that boys will also watch but Nickelodeon's figures found that boys and girls liked Crystal explains it all equally I think it has a really good theme tune which is what hooked me into it initially there's never any high jeopardy in it I guess the dramatic tone would put it in the same space as something like Full House maybe but it has a slight edge to it and a kind of level of oddity that those shows don't have a kind of Nickelodeon-ness that a lot of other shows from that period that Nickelodeon were putting out have I guess from Pete and Pete and Ren and Stimpy at the most extreme end to stuff like Alex Mac or, you know, Rocco's Modern Life. There's always this kind of slightly skewed element to Nickelodeon shows. Clarissa, for me, yeah, it was like I wasn't yet a teenager, but it was sort of like this vision of what being a teenager might be like in a kind of very low threat way. Yeah, because I didn't see it that much when it was on, mainly because the BBC initially showed it as part of Live and Kicking. So I saw bits of it because they were also showing the X-Men cartoon as part of that. And I remember basically seeing the opening titles and just thinking, meh. But it was around the same time because they didn't start showing it until 1994. I think ITV had already started showing Sabrina the Teenage Witch so I think she was kind of quitting Melissa Joan Hart because I remember her appearing on Live and Kicking one week and they made a really big deal of it. They were trailering it in the broom cupboard and so on which they didn't normally do with Saturday morning guests. I mean that kind of thing is de rigueur now. You know you've got the ridiculous situation yeah. where Ricky Gervais will go on Jonathan Ross's Radio 2 show to promote the fact he was on Parkinson late. 
later that same day. But that didn't really happen then. But they really pulled out the stops with her. But apparently, I wasn't aware of this, but they never did anything resembling a very special episode. Which, you know, just on face value, you'd assume it was that kind of teen thing. But there were things like, wasn't there apparently one where she shoplifted and she didn't get caught? But it was about her dealing with it herself and thinking, yeah, I might have done something wrong. She did it accidentally, basically. She accidentally ended up taking this bra home, basically. And it was like about how she going to like get this back. You know, it's like it's a very light sitcom. It's just that the angles of it are slightly spikier, but in a way, like obviously, I was like an 11, 12 year old kid, and I just found it appealing. Obviously, Clarissa as a character was attractive, so it's in a way like you know me as a preteen almost had a crush on her as a character. But also, there's something about her room was really cool. Like I also wanted her room and the idea that your friend could come in through the window by a ladder and stuff, which is sort of this level of like very kind of safe the idea you have a little alligator as your pet or something i mean to watch this now you go well this is this is so soft really and obviously ventures of pete and pete is the kind of about teenage life it's much hard like the problems they have there's like there are many more bullies and stuff in it and it's a lot harder edged and the quirkiness is a lot odder like little pete and pete and pete has a tattoo on his arm and like there's a load of there's a whole panoply of bad guys and stuff whereas in clutch explains it all the bully the brilliantly named clifford spleenhofer who's a originally her bully ends up developing a crush on her which she doesn't like and then eventually they end up in a relationship by the fourth season so it's like the jeopardy goes very quickly in Clarissa Explains It All but yeah there's something about it it's aggressively 90s colour palette of the on-screen captions and stuff and the animations it's all you know those kind of that colour of neon pink that really just says the 90s to me blues greens and stuff you just look at it you think this everything about this is 90s a little bit like we've moved on from vision mixing we've moved to this level where we can do these effects at, for a cheapish cost so we're going to use them everywhere it's sort of still a part of that era in some way a kind of hangover from the 80s visual effects era but the parents in it are funny and nice there's a lot of interesting side characters it's just very nice but in a way that isn't cloying. In latter years, I've seen quite a few of the Full House repeats. And the problem with Full Houses is what you just mentioned. It always had special episodes. So it always wanted to give you a moral. Whereas Christmas Man's all, like, there are morals in there, but it doesn't really sort of sell you the moral as hard. And I think that's the problem with a lot of American sitcoms of the, say, late 70s through to mid 90s, is, is the breaching of that Seinfeld rule, you know, like no crying, no hugging, no learning. There's too much of that in a lot of sitcoms. Whereas it happens in Clarissa, but you just don't notice it much and I think that's what was appealing about it well as I've said it was something I didn't really see very much of for obvious reasons because you know I was a bit old for it by the time it was on one amusing thing I remember which brings me around to an amazing fact about it was there was a CD that came out in either 96 or 97 called 100% Kids Party where a lot of kind of you know hip indie 60s types bought it because it had things on it like had a load of Hanna-Barbera theme tunes you know off the masters before you could mm. actually get them anywhere had the original Rupert the Bear single which was for a hit single that was difficult to get hold of but it also had I think it was just stuff that was being you know repeated or just in the public consciousness and it had sort of current things like the Power Rangers theme of Biker Mice from Mars and Terry Jones's Wind in the Willows song and it had the Clifford Explains It All theme I remember people just saying skip this when it came on you know it wasn't really what sort of people who were going from the Britpop thing into the lounge thing wanted to hear but like you say it is a good piece of music 
Do you know who actually wrote it? I know who sang it, but I don't know who wrote it. Well, it was written by somebody called Rachel Sweet, who's a really... Oh, Rachel Sweet. I knew that she sang it. I didn't know she wrote yeah, it Yeah, well. because she then, from then, moved on into TV theme composing. But for anyone who doesn't know, she was just discovered by chance because Stiff Records discovered Devo, the post-punk art rock band, in Akron, Ohio, and basically wanted to shift the compilation on the back of their success and thought, let's just go there, go round looking for local artists that can basically hold the tune and put out this album and her stuff really caught the public imagination over here in particular and she went overnight from just you know singing between meals in restaurants basically to being you know she was a star for a bit and then she did go into composing and I didn't know this was her until the other day she also with the Seinfeld reference she is in Seinfeld yes she is yeah she's George's cousin her thing in sitcoms though is incredible because she was writer and executive producer on Dharma and Greg two broke girls single guy and now the Goldbergs so like that's a lot like she's a bit zelig like I say the 90s through to the 2020s of American sitcom the only problem with that theme tune now as a grown man in the 2020 is that it does have peppered throughout it phrases such as way cool which somewhat undermine it but the thing that really disappoints me about Clutcher explains it all and this I only found this fact out in research for this episode was that they did shoot a pilot for a follow-up series called Clarissa where Clarissa was going to move to New York to work on a New York City newspaper the stand-up comedian Robert Klein was going to be her editor and I just love that idea but then I love all shows that are about journalists but specifically teen journalists like obviously press gang so the idea of like an American press gang is appealing to me but yeah Nickelodeon didn't pick up that pilot there is talk at the moment apparently about a revival of it she'd always said she'd never go back to the role but she is attached to it although it's stalled because of obviously because of the last 18 months yeah with her as a mother I think it could work as a concept it works if you think about it as you say well look people who watch the original show many of them are now parents it's workable it is workable if the scripts were decent it could be good at least they're not doing a Netflix Riverdale slash Sabrina style reboot of Clarissa Explains It All with a dark reimagining where Clarissa has to solve murders now I did think the only problem with bringing it back now is let's just get this out of the way Melissa Joan Hart is a bit of a Republican but thankfully thankfully I found out she publicly opposed Trump which you know will prevent her being cancelled when they revive it yeah I've got this issue with a lot of figures that I liked a lot in the 90s like Shawn Michaels the heartbreak kid from WWE because obviously many wrestlers turn out to be hunting shooting fishing Republicans so I just pretend like I do with Morrissey that they all died in like 1999 okay well in what's looking like the easiest set of links I've ever had in one of these we're going to move on to another the character who in a lot of ways broke the fourth wall himself but did not really have that much in common with Clarissa. If you're in search of a clean cut hero then you are out of luck. Honour be damned it's time to meet the 27th century's Russian rogue Nikolai Dante. Okay, from the ABC of 2000 AD, that's an introduction to Nikolai Dante. I'll let you explain the rest about him, Mick. Nikolai Dante first appeared in 1997, and the interest is sort of set in a kind of future Imperial Russia. Like, if you think about Imperial, imagine Imperial Russia, but steampunk, that's basically the world of Nikolai Dante. And he is part of, he's an illegitimate son of the new Romanov dynasty, and everyone in that family bonds with a kind of sentient biological weapon called the 
weapons crest. And in his case, that gives him the ability to send bio blades out of his body and hack into computer systems. His mad siblings all have different powers. It's a big sort of sprawling universe created by Robbie Morrison, writer Robbie Morrison and artist Simon Fraser. And it's just kind of wild. And I would say involved the largest amount of gratuitous nudity in 2018 during that period, which again, I who enjoyed that series between the ages of 11 and my mid 20s it's very pleased by yeah that's an interesting thing just to get out of the way about 2008 is you know there is the big thing about franchises and expanded universes at the moment and nobody's going near 2008 where there is the capacity for all these really famous characters to be linked up i can only assume that they've probably sold the rights to most of them for other media resulted in projects that never got off the ground and they can't claw them all back that must be behind it because it is so game for exploitation i mean, i was surprised you might correct me on this but on the wikipedia page there is no in other media for nikolai dante he is just a comic strip character yeah and it's crazy to me because if you think about something like blood and bone the series you know that was just on netflix which is set in a kind of fantastical imperial russia something like nikolai dante would work very well i wonder if it's the owners of 2018 now rebellion developments they are looking at things in other media and i know you know we've got coming soon we've got the road trooper film so maybe the road trooper film will if it does well will lead to other properties from that 2000 ad world being picked up on i think what's interesting about nicolas dante is when you think about it when you pick it apart it's an interesting chimera of a lot of things in a sense you know with the bio blades and stuff it feels a bit wolverine-y with the weapons crest thing you can look over to say think about the x-men for instance or think about any kind of marvel thing where you bond with something and it gives you powers there's something a bit venomy i guess symbiote about the weapons crest thing and then of course you've got the sense as well of maybe something a bit like road trooper where you know you have these kind of sentient biochips that are in the weapons so it's interesting to me it feels a little bit like they sat down and went what are bits that we like from lots of different things how can we like glom these together but it actually works it feels like a coherent world it's very funny nicolai dante is a character he's like a kind of he's not been amongst the family and what happens is the weapons crest accidentally bonds with him which is the realization that he's actually an illegitimate son of the czar and also puts him on a collision course with his half-brother arcadi who was meant to get that weapons crest but doesn't get it but it's very funny his mother is this like feared pirate and stuff and it just sort of keeps spiraling out and out and out you know he's a kind of classic sort of anti-hero rogue it's very very brutal very funny I think some of it now, the early stuff, might probably not be published now but it is good. <laughs> I think it's interesting to look as well at, you know, the whole nature of the strip and the sheer imagination in the idea of it and the extent of the world they built around him. It's interesting to compare to when I think of 2000 AD, I always think primarily of, you know, because I was too young to read it when it first came out and I would get to mm. sneakily read copies for about half a minute that, you know, elder relatives would have lying around and have it snatched off me. I always just think of, you know, those early strips were very rooted in fears from what was a very different time in a lot of ways at least in the way it felt you know because you got things like judge dread is obviously coming from you know the whole rise of the militaristic police the idea of armed police and so on in the 70s and to me it's always for peace with when you know when you see footage of you know police demonstrations in the 70s mm. and they always look as though they can't wait to get stuck in Absolutely. that kind of thing you know that that's where dread comes
comes from. You've got the updated Dan Dare, who has been moved into a kind of more cynical age. You've got Invasion, which is a proper Cold War thing, where the rebellion is led by someone straight out of the professionals. Exactly, yeah. And I was about to say, though, I think the overarching theme of all the early 2000 AD stuff is fear of the nuclear age. Because, yeah, you're right, Dread is about militarised policing, the power and threat of state violence. But also, it only exists because Mega City 1 is existing, and the other Mega Cities exist in the aftermath of a nuclear conflagration. Invasion is about fear of the Soviet threat. Road Trooper is about, again, militarised stuff and about the nation of the other side of the battle are essentially stand-ins for Soviets. So it is all about nuclear fear and the fear of that. And by the time you get to the early mid-90s, when I started to really read 2000 AD in earnest, you know, because I was the right age to start reading it, it had moved to be have to be somewhat more creative and to move somewhat away from those fears. I mean, that's unfair to say creative. They were very creative to start with, but the underlying fears are different. And if you look at the big dread stories of the 90s are big kind of arcing stories like Judge Death and stuff like that. There's Chopper, who's like this, you know, is about celebrity. It's about this famous kind of hover surfing champion and the nature of fame. And the judges cannot actually sort of punish him because he's too famous and there'll be too much risk if they punish him and stuff. So there's a lot of interesting. I think 2000D is great at picking up what's going on in the present and applying it to past, future and whatever else. Getting those themes within strips like a big strip in the 90s was slain, which is obviously set way, way in the past. But it still manages to have a feeling of the 90s about it, mainly in haircuts. Well, there's also around that time you get things like, you know, there's the big dread storyline that he was behind on this paperwork by years and years and years. You know, it's just quite a 90s concern compared to, you know, what he dealt with previously. But there's also Big Dave, who was Manchester's hardest man, who basically, I'm not suggesting anyone listening has never read Big Dave goes and reads it. It was basically just, you know, we'd see about Saddam Hussein on the news and think, I've had enough of him. And go and fight him. Which, that shows how much the world had changed since 2008. It was They were deliberately trying to offend with that, if anyone's wondering. Yeah. It was and, promoted as the summer offensive when it was first yeah, launched. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. The other thing about 2008 is in almost every strip, they do it a lot now. There is a hell of a lot of satire of the Boris Johnson within Dread Strips, whether it be the name of city blocks or just character development and stuff. Like there was Dread Story recently, Super Intelligent Monkey character has been spun off out into his own series. It was about rich people bumping each other off on a space station and then trying to blame it on the super intelligent monkey servants and stuff. So it's like, you know, 2008 satire is never, it's not sort of often that light hat, light top, but it's pretty good. Often I think, I feel like saying to people who, like me, like Private Eye, you should also read 2008 because they're doing loads of great satire, <laughs> but it has more, it has better jokes and like, you know, extreme violence. But yeah, Nikolai Dante, it's not like no one knows about it, but it is one of those strips that has not culturally really transcended beyond 2008. The visuals are incredible. Like you say, the world is intricately put together and there are so many characters but you can keep track of them and they are in themselves fascinating and yeah it's violent and it's funny and it's bawdy Dante is a complicated character who is a complete piece of work but you do root for him like you do most anti-heroes what I like about it as well is you know it's like you talking about the fact that people are saying that there is no authored television before like The Sopranos or whatever I think when you look at this it's a really great strip and script with a lot of moral ambiguity mostly characters who are not likable yet it's good people think that you have to have characters where there's at least one likable character but even Nikolai's not that likable he is a real piece of work well I was actually thinking while I was 
puts together notes for this that you know Freddie Hill's never seen him he kind of he's dressed a bit like Adam Ant during his Hussar phase you know that's the best way of describing him but yeah. I thought about that I thought about his characterisation and so on Russell T Davis has read this hasn't he yeah there's quite a bit of Captain Jack and in particular Captain John in him yeah 100% sexually voracious morally <laughs> ambiguous it's all there <laughs> there is just mentioning 2000 AD's you know satirical element though does bring me round to and mentioning the thing about author TV as well the fact that it annoys me enough there's a similar thing about the history of although the immutable point seems to be Watchmen and the Dark Knight you know that's when comics got serious but the two things are really it isn't just that people ignore the fact that Marvel had done things like Days of Future Past and the Kree Scroll War and Secret Wars before that but because they have jokes in and big full page psychedelic graphics that doesn't count but 2018 never gets factored in at all it's kind of treated by people who aren't 2018 fans as a bit kind of like a bit like a kid's comic with ideas above its station and there is all of that taint of why are grown men still reading this but it was sharper than most of the things that have been celebrated since 100% and the thing that drives me particularly crazy about that is 2018 published over 50 one-off Alan Moore stories in Future Shocks and a lot of Alan Moore's initial momentum comes from Marvel UK yeah which is a weird thing in and itself 2000 AD and Warrior that's where he starts off and so a lot of what brings him to become a great writer in that medium is within the crucible 2000 AD if 2000 AD doesn't exist then a lot of the experience that Alan Moore got that brought him to you know what he created in the American mainstream in the DC comics it just wouldn't have happened I don't think absolutely but you know if anyone likes to kind of creatively rewrite the history it's him yeah okay we're moving on to your next choice now and I know I said Nikolai Dante had a very large universe but I really really hope for their sake he never ran up against these two all your scoundrels all your villains shock the moves fast and is not getting gangsters hoodlums thugs and robbers George gets there and crime gets clobbered Sharky and George the crime busters of the sea Watch your teeth, all you crooks. George is expert with macro hooks. Multiple capers in the sea. Sharky makes sure they don't go free. Sharky and George, the crime busters of the sea. Okay, that was a theme from Sharky and George, a programme that I remember being everywhere at the time, but since, as we'll come on to, kind of fallen off the edge of the internet. Mick, who were they? They're the crime busters of the sea, Tim. That's who they are. <laughs> Sharky's like this lazy pink shark who's quite large. He's sort of got a kind of Humphrey Bogart-style hat, and George is a smaller fish, blue with a yellow face, a bit younger, and they solve crimes in Chicago, which is a underwater-based American city, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Mainly I picked this because it comes into my mind the theme 
tune comes in immediately but it just is it's something about it it's just sort of like I think it's kind of lives in that world of like well for me it's a couple of things cross over in it which is Dogtanian and, and the Musker Hounds and also Bugsy Malone it's this kind of taking of something and making it into a cartoon version of it there's something very pleasing about it it didn't run for very long either it was only ran for two years there's like 52 episodes I don't know how many of them I've seen I used to see a lot of them because it was programmed in a block of cartoons with Mysterious Cities of Gold on Channel 4 on Sunday mornings for I think about three four years programmed on there for quite some time and obviously just used to fill space and it, was, it comes from that era where there was a lot of French and Canadian shows that were redubbed for the UK market like another show that I like a lot is Around the World in 80 Days with Willie Fogg for instance I can't remember that many episodes I just sort of have fragments of it in my head and you know it's one of those very formatted shows in that like it's always a villain of the week and Sharky and George you know defeat the villain of the week but it's very pleasing the characterization is pleasing the visuals are pleasing conceptually it's like okay yeah you get it you get it from the theme tune there's Sharky and George the crime busters of the sea fine I'm in well to me it forms part of that very brief phase there was and I only really experienced it from a UK perspective I'd love to know what it was like in America that suddenly off the wall animations on television were a mainstream proposition because obviously it starts with the Simpsons and then you get Red and Stimpy and Beavis and Butthead and you know obviously all three of those to varying extents were quite adult orientated or at least teenage orientated but you get a lot of cartoons aimed at kids you know Earthworm Jim would be a good example of that another incredible theme tune well yeah and they've all got that incredibly high quality you know really good scripts really good imagination and it only lasts for about four or five years and then South Park kind of puts a stop to that by you know they've all been playing with going too far even the kids ones the South Park just went too far every week that was the full stop on it there's never really been a critical hit of that kind since then I don't think I mean there have been things that you know have been successful been popular but it's never been that kind of level of what's the new one has anyone seen the new one yet I guess until Rick and Morty I feel like Rick and Morty exists it almost like pops in you know because you have years and years where it's American dad and family guy basically in dominance and then the Simpsons you know in its sort of dying years similarly with South Park it's like it had such cultural dominance that now it's a kind of you know it's still there but you know it's just why is it still there the problem with Rick and Morty is that its fans are by and large appalling (laughs) but it has that level I think it belongs in the same lineage as something like Ren and Stimpy because it has that like depth of lore and oddity like I I always loved about Ren and Stimpy is like how there are all these brands of food in it or the weird no sir I don't like it horse turns up a lot and stuff and like you just feel like oh this world is like very complete and oddly actually Rocco's Modern Life is quite like that as well not as extreme as Ren and Stimpy but still you know like there are little bits in it like the more you watch it the more you see oh okay this world is very thought out and obviously Rick and Morty takes that to another level because it's like a philosophical psychological explosion Sharky and George see very simple compared to that but just just something about it it's like yeah somewhere in a room at some point some people had to walk into a room and go what it is right it's a film noir but it's fish and a shark yeah but the shark and the fish get on and the shark never tries to eat the fish and don't overthink the logic of a vast city underwater that's a bit like Chicago but entirely full of fish and don't think at all about how none of them have opposable thumbs so how does any of this stuff in the city work no no don't worry about any of that just this is what it is and they went yeah fine you know let's make it and there is that kind of like I mean because like I say one of the reasons I think South Park changed all that was you mentioned Family Guy and American Dad which you know they have their strengths but they followed that thing of going 
out to offend. Whereas yeah. I think before that, I mean, obviously something like Sharky and George, although it, you know, it had its moments where it poked at things with a very sharp stick. Even Beavis and Butthead had its extreme moments, but at the same time, a lot of it was just completely ridiculous. And they were always, they were the victims of their own stupidity and they knew it. And they blamed yeah. nobody but themselves for their failure with women. And the thing I have to point out to people a lot is, this is kind of idea now people say they were the first incels. Like, well, no, because, you know, A, they did blame themselves. B, who was their best friend? Daria, who, you know. Yeah, one of the best spin-offs of all time. Exactly. And because she was the only person that treated them like actual people who just happened to be stupid. So they had a lot of respect for there was that kind of I don't want to say moral court these days because I'm quite if Ren and Stimpy was quite immoral in a lot of ways but like the Canadian national anthem I don't think you could get away with now but there wasn't the intent to shock I don't know how we got from shocking George to this do you know one of the things uh, while we're on the topic though I, I often think is so Daria is in the same universe as Beavis and Butthead is King of the Hill in the same universe as them because I feel like it might be the judge universe obviously you can't pull the live action stuff into that but like I don't know but Sharky and George you're right has virtually disappeared I feel like this is probably my best choice in this episode that actually fits the brief of the show which is stuff that a lot of people have forgotten about I think a lot of people have forgotten about this show I mean most of the links to the cast of the Wikipedia page you know those ones where it's in red as though somebody thinks there should be a page for this person and there isn't and there's a couple of pages where people say oh I remember Sharky and George how come there's nothing about it on the internet and that's it it's never really been I think there was a VH VHS. So it's four VHS is released in the late 90s but are now out of print and the DVDs containing only 10 episodes of the series were released in France in 2005 but are now no longer available and if you look it up on YouTube all you find is the intros. No one's put up whole episodes or anything and there is a party planning company called Sharky and George operating in London. <laughs> it says here. Yes, yeah, they get the top Google results. I mean, no disrespect to them. Sure, they do a very good job but, you know, to overshadow your inspiration you must have mixed feelings about that, I'm sure. You would think so, wouldn't you? Okay, well, as you might have noticed, there's so little out there about Sharky and George. We've got little to say beyond our own sort of personal recollections and opinions. But we're moving on now to your next choice. Who is somebody who is very well documented despite not really having existed at all? <laughs> For me, Lynn's obsession with um, unadulterated offence, with always saying the wrong thing at the wrong time, and with characters that behave in the same way, makes him a clown in the truest sense. Uh, by which I mean he's a clown, like the clowns of a Native American uh, ritual, the shaman clowns whose job for one day, a week, a year, or whatever, was to fly in the face of all accepted order. So for me, Lynn is a clown, and people say to me, when you say he's a clown, uh, was he funny? I go, not necessarily. Did he wear clown makeup? No, he didn't, uh, as far as we know. Was he trained in clowning? No, he wasn't. So to all intents and purposes, he's not a clown, but... For me, he is a clown. And the what about now technique? That's a good, uh, that's a very annoying technique of he. Uh, is that okay? Yes. What about now? Y yeah, it's fine. What about now? Y yeah, it's fine. <laughs> what about now? Yes, yeah, it's, it's fine. But 15 times, it's not fine. There were those who said that he 
just didn't like um, service, though other people would say he just didn't like um, bad service. Okay, that was a little bit from a documentary about Jeff Lint, who was the subject of an extensive biography by Steve Aylett. Mick, what was going on here? Jeff Lint is an imaginary author created by Steve Aylett, but that he pretends exists in this incredible biography. So the book, it's basically, he's a pulp author who eventually, at one point, ends up writing for Star Trek and all sorts of stuff, and has this zealot-like trail through the 20th century. So, you know, Philip K. Dick is in there, Hunter S. Thompson, Ken Kesey, and it actually oddly enough some of Lint's work is sort of like Aylet Aylet is a very odd writer brilliant writer I think but very particular and Jeff Lint spills out of the Lint biography into stuff like a comic that Aylet wrote called The Caterer which is purportedly written by Jeff Lint the one issue they've made is called The Caterer number three (laughs) like no one or two and no subsequent issues there's a collection of academic essays on his work called And Your Point Is and then of course the Lint movie which has Alan Moore, Stuart Lee, Robin Ince, Josie Long and others in it, talking as if Lint exists. And in a way, I feel like Lint does exist. (laughs) I think Lint is one of the funniest books. I I genuinely think it's one of the funniest books I've ever read. But I think it's one of those books that Stuart Lee talks about it on an episode of uh, Good Read, which you can find on BBC Sounds. And the other people he subjects to it do not enjoy it. The way this book is written is uh, one of my favourite quotes is from Chapter 8. One of Lint's rivals is reviewing one of Lint's books. And the rival says, the narrator appears to be constructing a raft with which to escape our interest stated cameo herzog in his 1958 review of nose furnace and in this the finished structure succeeds admirably which i think is hilarious and is also in a way quite a good review of the lint book it's like if you don't like this style of jokes every element of it is just aggressively telling you to go away there are so many funny bits in it it's fascinatingly led and i mean you know if you are someone like i know you are who loves you know these kind of obscurities of pop culture and complexities of pop culture history the way that lynn intersects with and you know like he kind of you know at one point his episode of star trek is ludicrous and kind of shows while he can write these pulp novels he should be nowhere near star trek but it's brilliant because you read it and you see the references to these people and you see how lynn is a kind of you know broken version of a lot of people who wrote for these pulp magazines it's hard to describe it without you know making it sound like one of the worst books ever written well there was also apparently it was there for a worryingly lengthy amount of time was there was a like straight faced fake wikipedia page about him as in somebody did a wikipedia page as if you know, it was about the real jeff lint not about the construct the character and it made me think of one of the things that has always made me laugh the most was in the late 80s was a book called the guinness book of rock stars which had sort of month by month kind of chronologies of the rolling stones and so on but written in the kind of short sentence summary way and it had the ruttles in there it was a bit early for Spinal Tap to be in. We had the Ruttles as if they were a real band. Yeah, I love that. The bit that really made me laugh was when they talk about, you know, Ron Nasty's allegedly saying the Ruttles are bigger than God, but he actually said they're bigger than Rod. Rod Stewart, who will not be famous for another eight years, but it has the citation for the Rod Stewart entry in the book. And for some reason, that just caused me hysterics every time. What I love about the mockumentary about Jeff Lint in particular is that I'm not normally that 
big on when people mock up a fake thing from the past in a kind of arch way, as if they're thinking they're cleverer than everyone else and, you know, trying to convince people it was real. And, you know, they're playing some weird game I don't get. I do like it when it is tongue-in-cheek, it's deliberately silly. And what I love about this is that everyone in it, Stuart Lee, Josie Long, Robin Ince, they're kind of making fun of their own personas and their own obsessions at the same time in expressing their admiration for this. You know, what they are depicting is a very real character from literary history, but they are sending themselves up. And I think that goes along. It's like a straight-faced version of the Brian Perm mockumentaries. It is, very much. The other thing I like about it is that he manages to introduce real people into the Lint biography without doing that kind of thing that you get in Forrest Gump, where it feels like, oh, you've kind of just composited Tom Hanks into this scene. But this is a bit early in the book where Lint sends a letter to Ernest Hemingway. It's this perfect grammar of Hughes screaming who wrote in a letter to Ernest Hemingway, who was in France observing the 22nd Infantry Regiment's push towards Germany. Hemingway didn't know Lint and knew immediately he didn't want to. And I just think in that single sentence, it's like brilliant because Steve Aylett is quite capable of borrowing Hemingway for this book, but like sums Hemingway up so well in this sentence. It's just like a very Hemingway response to this not existing person. For me, like almost every page is hilarious. He constantly invents these names of books that are both feasible but ridiculous and magazines that, you know, you feel could have existed. And there's something wonderful about that to be able to, you know, write about this character in this most ludicrous way. But as you go through it more and more, you feel yourself sort of falling into Lint's world. Thinking, yeah, no, I can imagine him like firing 40 pounds of chili from a turn of the century base baseball gun mounted on the roof of his apartment and then telling Kerouac about it and Kerouac being very baffled. It's just like, yeah, okay, now I could see this happening. I well imagine this. And also, what's really great about it is as the book goes on, you get the sense of, like, the Aylert character becoming more and more frustrated by Lint. Not in a, like, very obvious way, but there's just something in the way over time. It's like you get the sense of you see it in real biographies where people have had to be a biographer of someone for many years. And by the end of the research process and by the end of the writing, they're kind of fed up with this person. And that's the feeling you get in this book. But, yeah, I do genuinely think it's like the extended Lint universe that's been created is amazing. The mockumentary is brilliant, but the book itself is every page has numerous hilarious lines on it. But I will say you will either love it or you will only get through about five pages before saying I really, you know, have better things to do with my life. Well, I think that's why. It's well known enough to have inspired all these spin-offs and, you know, actually have a proper Wikipedia page now, but it isn't that widely known. It isn't as well known as you think it should be. And I wonder why that is. Is it because it's an acquired taste? I think it's hard work. I mean, Aylet's work generally is odd. So he's got this series called the Beer Light series, which is like a series of sort of crime novels, but they're set in a kind of cyber noir near future metropolis. And it's like if William Gibson had written the Sprawl trilogy, but decided that he had no interest in whether readers liked it or not, you know, almost everyone in it is like a grotesque, amoral kind of person. And I think, again, it's, it's really fantastic. But like there's another trilogy that he's done, which is set in this sort of nuclear blasted future, this peninsula in the nuclear blasted future and underneath it there are all these demons it's fascinating but I don't know Aylet kind of reminds me of the fall in a way he's a bit like Marky Smith he like layers tons of references he has no interest in explaining the references to you and you either get hooked by one and think I want to know more about this or you just think this is like a similar experience to being shouted at by a derelict (laughs) 
you know, and I happen to be the sort of person that enjoys art that feels like being shouted out by a derelict. I can't really think of how to follow that. So that's as good enough a moment to go into your next choice, which I'm just going to catch some of you out with this. You just lost the game. Okay, well, if you heard the silence there and then heard the voice, you definitely have just lost the game. Mick, what game are we playing? The game is a mental game, which is just called the game. And the object of the game is to not think about the game itself. And once you think about the game, you have lost the game. And then when you do that, you have to say, I've lost the game. It's maddening because once you're aware of it, it sort of never leaves you. I think I first encountered it in a playground and it's stayed with me ever since. To such an extent that during the time when I worked for the next web, I wrote an article about the game, which is now referenced on the game's Wikipedia Yes, page. you're the main citation on the Wikipedia page. I think that's the first time that's ever happened with a guest, to be honest. Yeah, slightly cheating. Because I, I sort of said that it was like the pre-web world's version of a Rickroll. And it's interesting because this, some people say, OK, it goes back to sort of only go, it goes back to sometime in what the 70s as there was a Cambridge University Science Fiction Society were trying to come up with a game that didn't fit with game theory. But actually, you can go much further back because you can go back to Dostoevsky wrote this essay in 1863 called Winter Notes on Summer Impressions, where he says, try and set yourself the task not to think of a white bear. And the cursed thing comes to mind every minute. And so the white bear is a kind of version of the game. Like once you think about the white bear, you know, you can't, once you know about the white bear, it's very hard to avoid the white bear. But partly I wrote the game article just so that the slug of the article could be you just lost the game um, <laughs> but then you go to 1969 and some mathematicians david fowler and anatoly beck described a game called finchley central where two players alternate naming the stations of london underground first say finchley central wins it's clear that the best time to say finchley central is exactly before your opponent does failing that is good that he should be considering it you could of course say finchley central on your second turn in that case your opponent puffs on the cigarette and says well shame on you and then that's where cambridge university science fiction society then create their own version and yeah it just goes on and on and on and then some people say that the modern version of the game began in 1982 when mark hauslett a former member of that society told his colleague about the idea as they waited for a train at finchley central station which had reminded them of the earlier game so it's like this layered thing but now it's just out in the world like a kind of logic virus and once you become aware of it it's there forever that's what's fascinating about it to me is this whole history and this whole there isn't one invention of it it seems to be people just inventing it over and over again i mean there are historical precedents to it but the cambridge university science fiction society thing does kind of make sense because that would have been around the time i'm sure they would have been early adopters of dungeons and dragons and role playing and you know which are very complicated gameplay and the idea that they were looking for something that was the complete opposite of it makes you know with masquerade by kit williams around then as well but also what doesn't get mentioned that often is what's something that's really interesting is my first thought of it is that it's like a paranoid mornington crescent from i'm sorry i haven't a clue but whereas with yeah. that the whole point is the rules get bigger and bigger and you know more arcade and contradictory and inexplicable and i mentioned that mainly so i can mention the was it called the authorized history of mornington crescent it was on radio four years ago but it had really rushed and mocked up a musical song about it by a bloke singing i'm lord mornington crescent and all of you isn't <laughs> still makes me double up but you know that gets bigger and bigger and the game in a way if it's possible gets smaller and smaller yeah and you can only ever lose it you can only ever you can never win the game the only way to win the game is to forget that the game 
game exists because once you have the game in your mind you're trapped with the game you can choose to not play it anymore but you're still playing it well apparently some people are trying to float the idea that the game ends when the prime minister of the uk says the game is up just as part of something else while you could possibly imagine margaret thatcher or tony blair saying it even at a push david cameron can you imagine that idiot at the moment that useless blancmange in charge at the moment actually making it four coherent words in order because i can't so the game is going to go on indefinitely for the moment yeah. i'm just wondering if it's ever crossed over with the game from the wire as in it's all in the game y'all and the game yeah. is the game or the rapper the game yeah. <laughs> if you could get that's how you finish the game you get the rapper the game to say the wire quote <laughs> And then that's it. It's game squared and we're all free. And if you've listened to the edition of Lots of Familiar, I'm sorry, but you've just lost the game again. <laughs> There's no getting away from it. Nick, it's been brilliant. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. on your telly by tim worthington from fish to fun to ski boy the ultimate guide to the tv that time forgot find out more timworthington.org